Today, I'm talking with Sarah Red Laird. She is the founder and executive director of the B-Girl organization based in Ashland. She's also director of the American Beekeeper Association's youth program, Kids and Bees. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so, so much for much having me. For, and thank you so much for being here. As I was saying before, you do such important work. I have been um, doing this series on women who work in the world of plants. And of course, bees and plants are just, uh, you know, very closely related. But I'm going to let you explain to us how you see bees and plants as being closely related. What's their relationship and why is it so important? Well, right around 86% of plants need a pollinator in order to reproduce. And so um, wind pollinated foods like corn or wheat don't need a pollinator, don't need bees, but most of our food, so, and the majority of our foods that have color and flavor and vitamins do need a pollinator, like strawberries and almonds and a lot of our citrus and many, many of our berries and even a lot of our vegetables like carrots or cucumbers still need a pollinator to pollinate those flowers to make seeds for the next generation of those foods. And um, most of the plants that I just mentioned require our honeybees as pollinators. Um, honeybees are, are, are pollinators that work in our agricultural landscapes to pollinate our food for us, but many of our um, honeybees actually aren't native to the U.S., and there are about 4,000 native species of bees in North America, and they help out quite a bit too. Um, and however, you can uh, also envision that there are many, many, many plants, many flowers in our wild areas that require a pollinator as well. And the most prolific pollinator is our bees. There are other pollinators like butterflies and bats and even mice can pollinate, but our bees are hands down our best pollinators. And these bees in the wild that pollinate um, flowering trees that eventually will produce berries then feed anything from tiny little songbirds up to big giant grizzly bears. So our, um, our bees are, are definitely uh, um, very interlinked to our plants as well as our survival and the survival of a lot of, of, a lot of wildlife. It's such a complex relationship. You know, ecosystems are so vulnerable and um, bees play such a, an important part as markers of a healthy ecosystem. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we have been kind of pointing to bees as being the canary in the coal mine of our quite broken agricultural system. And in 2006, 2007, a phenomenon called colony collapse disorder began. And it was a, um, a, a phenomenon where a beekeeper would go to check on their hives and they seemed normal and fine. And a couple of weeks later, they would check again on their hives and they would be, the bees would just be gone. There'd be a small amount of very kind of confused looking 
bees in a queen present that didn't look well and wasn't being taken care of, and then the, the colony would not survive. And thousands and thousands of hives, especially commercial hives that work in agriculture across America, started suffering from this. And that really brought the spotlight to bees and their importance in our food system and our reliance on them to have food and not just food, cotton as well. Cotton is pollinated by honeybees too. So um, you and I are both wearing cotton shirts today. So we can thank our honeybees for that. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, our colony collapse disorder, the phenomena has um, become a whole lot less common, but still year after year after year, Beekeepers are having a really hard time keeping their honeybees alive, um, especially those beekeepers that bring their bees into um, uh, industrial agricultural areas. Um, do um, year after year after year, they have to spend more money on medication, more money on supplemental feed, um, and there's more pesticides and less flowers across the landscape. Um, the and so, and our bees aren't. It surviving and um and that's yeah showing us that um uh as resilient as they are as honeybees are extraordinarily resilient if they're having a hard time then they're showing us that something needs to change in the way that we grow our food so have you been doing this work since around 2006 2007 when all of that was really in the spotlight uh, right around then is that is that phenomena really tugs pretty hard on my heartstrings as I've always been a honey lover and a bee lover and I learned about colony collapse disorder from the from a Hagen dazs ice cream container. They did a whole honey flavored um, uh, flavor um, uh, feature for quite a for a couple of years at least um, calling attention to colony collapse disorder. Um, really the world knows about this because of Haagen-Dazs. Normal people that don't work in academia know about this because of Haagen-Dazs. So that's how I found out about it. And then um, just kind of took it up as a cause that I became very concerned about and started paying attention to. And then I officially started working in a research capacity when I was a student at the University of Montana in Missoula in 2009. So that's when I officially entered the honeybee world. Wow. And that's been, I mean, it's that's 12 years ago. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> How, what changes have you seen between now and then um, for the better and for the worse? <laughs> um, on the, Let's start with the good yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on the human level, I've been so impressed by watching just the awareness of the public. Um, not only just being aware that honeybees are important, but just the depth of knowledge and concern and the creativity around how to help our bees from the general public has just really grown exponentially, which is so inspiring to, to me to see such concern over these little creatures that I feel so much um, love for and I feel so protective of. And so it's really wonderful to see that. And when I first started um, 
you know, tabling at garden shows to try and get people to consider <laughs> not spraying in their gardens. And I would bring um, educational leaflets and stickers for kids. And I would bring an observational beehive of bees for people to see and just really try and reach out to start a conversation around um, uh, providing more flowers for bees in people's yards and gardens, and then also using less pesticides. The questions I would get were, I mean, it was more like statements. It was something along the lines of like, people wanted to know about killer bees and people wanted to tell me that they had a bee allergy and they hated bees. <laughs> and that was pretty much like the gamut <laughs> of the conversation. Um, and now when I do events in public, it is just amazing the the depth of knowledge and the breadth of um, care and love that the general public has for our bees. So that's been um, really, really wonderful. Um, well, your work I guess, has been successful. I mean, I really attribute, attribute more awareness to you and people like you who are out there in, you know, in the pastures and fields and vineyards and gardens and, and, and also garden shows and sitting behind tables and passing out leaflets. So, I mean, we can really, um, we can really thank folks like you for an increase in our knowledge and awareness about how important bees are. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, um, it's such hard work and it's so hard to define. We're a nonprofit, so we write a lot of grants to try and get funding for our work. And it's so, it's nearly impossible to define what you do to help shift a paradigm in the public. Um, that's just not, it's not quantifiable. And it's so hard to explain and, but every once in a while I'll get a note um, or an email or run into, I mean, I've run into people in the middle of absolutely nowhere in the US at a coffee shop that recognize me and say, oh my gosh, bee girl, you like check out my bee ring. You've inspired me to love bees. And I had my, um, my, my, this is a true story. This one was like my, um, my fiance's mother had this ring custom made for me because I love bees so much and it's all because of you. And so like you oh, can't, Sarah, that's gotta be so gratifying. <laughs> it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful that like, I don't, sometimes I'm like, what do I do? And I just kind of, I mean, we do a lot and we work really hard and there's a lot more than just me here at the bee girl team. Uh, but um, I mean, that's just kind of what I do is I just love bees and I tell people about how I love bees and why I love bees. And it's, I, it's just wonderful that it gets, the message gets out there and it really does touch people. And then they're able to begin a relationship with bees and then they can generate their own love, which then um, translates into conservation practices and um, making different choices in the voting booth or when they're buying food or what they're spraying or planting in their garden. So yeah, now that's that, what it's all about. Now that we're, we have increased our knowledge and awareness, what, what would you say is the biggest challenge going into 2022 to help keep the momentum going or even increase that momentum? I mean, where, where's, the, where's the holdup in your view? Yeah, I um, I feel like the holdup is in uh, 
I guess you could say mainstream agriculture, commercial agriculture, industrial agriculture, how the majority of us um, are able to receive our food um, is still just a very, uh, it's just a toxin laden, unhealthy place. And, and I do get to see like, um, we're actually fundraising right now for um, a van that will convert into a, a research and a research lab and education um, unit uh, that'll be packed full of all sorts of stuff for me to be able to go out and do soil and bee health um, monitoring um, and also just talk to and meet with farmers and ranchers and winemakers that are already doing good things in agriculture, but they just need a little help doing things better for bees specifically. And so I hope to spend a lot of my year being able to travel and meet with people who manage our agricultural landscapes to help make them more bee friendly. Um, because there are a lot of people out there and I am seeing a shift. There's this, this buzz, if you will, around regenerative agriculture and really starting to grow our food in a way that regenerates the landscape regenerates the environment, regenerates even the local human community. And so there are, there is a, a push towards that, but I think that only accounts for about 5% of the food system. And so we have a lot of work to go. And that's where I kind of get um, stuck inside my head and uh, a bit depressed sometimes is thinking about the other 95% and the amount of money and subsidies and corruption that um, enables that system to happen. And um, yeah, so that that's that's the that's the drawback. That's the negative is just kind of being overwhelmed by the amount of money and power in, in big ag. Yeah, definitely overwhelming at times. But let's talk about your uh, projects. Uh, you, you are doing some great work in terms that you talked about regenerative agriculture with regenerative um, bee pastures. Yeah. I just love <laughs> that. So talk to me about your goals for that and how that's working. Um, yeah. Yeah, so regenerative bee pasture is using holistic management, which is a form of uh, grazing livestock on the landscape that is all based on what the soil needs. So it's based on um, timing and also um, rotationally moving your animals around the pasture to keep the pasture as healthy as possible. If you um, move your cattle like this, um, it can be extremely, it's livestock can be extraordinarily detrimental or extraordinarily regenerative to a, to a landscape um, and especially to a pasture. And if you, um, the idea is to give the plants and hopefully also the flowers a break from grazing by either consistently moving those cows with a horse and dog team or consistently moving those cows and or sheep um, or other livestock with uh, a series of electric fencing to basically 
um, utilize their slobber and their pee and their poo and have it good all stomped in and fertilize the field. And then once it's, and then they munch the grass down, not to the wee nubbins, but just enough. Um, and then uh, and move them onto the next paddock and so on and so on and so on. And then really just keeping, being out on the landscape every day and keeping an eye on the landscape to, to make sure that your, um, that your soil is healthy and happy. And so that's kind of the basics of holistic grazing. And, and that's um, just, that's a part of regenerative agriculture in general. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Goes right. in hand. It could also be called regenerative grazing or mob grazing. There's actually a lot of different words for that. Holistic grazing is more kind of like a, a lifestyle choice as well of even thinking like who you want to be as a person and who you want to be in your community and how that fits into your agricultural style. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really love about holistic grazing um, or just even holistic management, the whole um, theory and philosophy behind uh, holistic management. But then for my work, as I want to really bring in bee habitat to this, because in the pastures that I have visited, I'll see a couple of different flowers, something that might grow naturally there, like a, some dandelions or maybe one or two different kinds of clover. But I would really love to see 15, 16, 17 different species of flowers blooming in these pastures. So that's what I know it's possible. <laughs> I've heard of this working in the Midwest and one ranch in particular that belonged to Gabe Brown, one of my mentors for this project, um, a rancher, farmer rancher in North Dakota. Um, and so we, I am partnering with a rancher here, Zach Dauenhauer and, um, and his, uh, on one of his large pastures. And we're just trying to get this figured out as to using rotational grazing and fencing and um, planting with specific tools that don't hurt the soil and don't disrupt the soil and the microbe soil communities. Um, how can we get as many flowers into the landscape as possible? Has that and been difficult to, um, because you think of pasture and you think of grass, you don't really yeah. think about flowers. And I would think that some ranchers might think that, well, wait a minute, if I fill my um, pasture with flowers, then that means I'm not filling it with grass for my cattle or sheep or whatever. So what do you tell those ranchers about yeah, the importance yeah, of flowers? Actually, yeah, that's a common thought is like, oh, well, ungulates just need grass. However, um, in um, areas here in the U.S. where that were uh, historically prairie lands, where our, our native ungulate, the bison, would graze, there are, oh man, it's something crazy like... Um, 132 different plant species per square meter or something just oh my crazy God. like that. Diversity is actually what is needed on the landscape to keep the soil and the animals themselves healthy and the bees healthy. Um, so you really just can't have enough diversity. So having a pasture that has just one or two kinds of grass uh, the data, there is data out there to show that um, that does not make for a healthy cow and it does not make for a delicious cut of meat. <laughs> the most, there's actual, there's research out there that shows that the more diverse and the more flowers that you have in your pasture, the better tasting your livestock are and also the less disease and issues that you have with your livestock health. 
you know, so are there win, 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 win. <laughs> Absolutely. Are there particular flowers um, that you are recommending for these pastures or, and um, or particular uh, kinds of grass? Yeah, so I have a dream list of all of the different flowers that we're trying to get grow to grow. It is not easy. If it was easy, everybody else would already be doing this. Um, it has been a, I'm not going to lie, it is a huge challenge. I've been working on this for like intensively working on this project for about three years now. And with our challenges with climate change and with um, the last year, the irrigation issues, because many of the flowers that are on my list do need to be irrigated. And so last year was a bit of a fail. Um, but so does the grass that most- Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So does the grass. Uh, plants <laughs> plants need water um, and not severe heat and wildfire smoke. So um, yeah, it, it, the climate has made it really challenging. And then, you know, there's just many challenges that come up. Equipment failures, <laughs> things breaking down, um, things not being available when I need them, seeds not being available when I need them. So there's an ongoing set of challenges. Um, but- um, your question was about flowers. <laughs> so I do have a dream. I have a dream list of like 18 to 19 different species of flowers that I'm trying to get grow to grow. Um, my short list of flowers that do grow in Southern Oregon pastures um, pretty easily are number one is Phacelia, which is a gorgeous flower. It it's is beautiful. It's really easy to grow. It's super inexpensive. It's really um, high in nutrients for livestock and for bees and not just honeybees and bumblebees are generalist pollinators, but many, many, many of our um, uh, smaller and weirder and more fun native bees also love Phacelia. So that's probably my number one pasture plant. Sunflowers can also be a pasture plant. I've had great success with um, Maximilian sunflower which are a little bit more expensive. The seeds are a lot more, quite a bit more expensive, but they're super resilient and they're drought tolerant. They need, um, one of my pastures didn't get, uh, none of my pastures got irrigation this year, but one of them that I've been working with for quite a while now, uh, I had great success with the Maximilian sunflowers coming back this year. It um, isn't super palatable, so you really have to train your livestock to love it, but once they do, they do. Um, Again, super high in, um, in nutrient density uh, for all creatures. Um, and then it, it's a perennial and it will come back every single year and it gets bigger and bigger. I also, during the Alameda fire, a rancher friend of mine said that um, her farm was flattened by the fire and except for the Maximilian sunflower, it survived when the flower, when the fire came through. So it is also extraordinarily resistant to fire, which is really interesting because it's a plant that's native to the Midwestern prairies where fire is quite common. So it has evolved apparently to be fire resistant, which is pretty cool. It is cool. Um, and then I would say um, my third favorite, which is a little bit trickier to grow, um, but totally worth messing around with it is sandfoin which is this beautiful pink kind of cone looking flower. And makes, what's the name of it again? It's called Sanfoin, S-A-N-F-O-I-N. It's actually native to France. Um, but once you can get it to grow, it will 
grow really well. It gets along really well with other plants. I've had good um, luck with it popping up in my pastures and growing well with the other plants. Um, it grows into the summer when not a lot of other things are blooming. It is a prolific nectar and pollen producer and makes absolutely gorgeous honey. Um, and it is super highly nutrient dense for livestock and has a natural dewormer in the in it. And so um, wow. there, I've heard of some uh, farmers and ranchers um, actually being able to cut out their worming program because the um, benefits of the sandfoin. So wow, Sarah, yeah. who would have thought? Who would be my top three pasture plants? Wow. Well, that's just, I mean, that whole, I, I, I just find that very fascinating because we, we have a lot of pasture land. We use a lot of pasture land. Why not uh, use the pastures to also help the bees and the bees help the pastures and the livestock? I mean, it just seems like a very um, smart way to go about, uh, you know, helping bees and, and, and the ranchers too. Yeah. Yeah. Our um, grazing lands are, um, by and large, the largest land use area in the country, even more than forest land. There's more pasture and um, grazing area um, than there is forests in the U.S. So I think that there's a whole lot of opportunity there. Absolutely. And speaking of that, let, let's let's also talk about the um, the relationship between uh, bees and vineyards. Yeah. I also think that's a very smart project because. Here we are, we're converting lots of our land to vineyards. So mm -hmm. why not use what we know about bees and, and vineyards and combine the two? I just think that's so terrific. Tell us a little bit about that project too. Yeah, yeah. So um, wine grapes are self-pollinating. So they don't need bees to move their pollen. They just right. I don't think that together. people, I don't <laughs> think that the, um, the, uh, the, um, uh, one of my viticulturalists have ever thought about that because of what you're saying that yeah no they don't, don't care <laughs> for the most part <laughs> this has been a real hard sell I started the bee friendly vineyards initiative about eight years ago and in just the last couple years I've finally found a partner that is like amazing and so fun to work with and just has the same mindset as I do and so this kind of started after moving back from Montana, moving back to Southern Oregon and seeing all of the vineyards that had um, uprooted our pasture lands and, and become places where people grow grapes and tasting rooms where people go visit and drink the wine. And um, I, I just kept thinking like, wow, like this is just such an opportunity. Massive pollinator deserts are being formed, but um, Wherein, where there's the problem is always the opportunity for the solution as well. And so I, I thought, well, there's a lot of extra space around these vineyards. They're not necessarily growing vines. Could we plant anything there that we could toss some water on and feed some bees? And I did have quite a few folks in the area that were really interested and it just never really took hold. And then a vineyard, um, a winemaker named James Frey, who has Tristatum Wines up in the Willamette Valley, heard about my work and wanted to partner. And so we've been able to, and I, this was my, 2021 was my second year of working with them. And our philosophy is spray less and plant more. 
And then also it became mow less. <laughs> and so I go up three times a year and I monitor their practices, um, their vineyard practices, uh, as far as landscape management, as well as monitor physically, just monitor bees, um, up there to get a, to be able to data is a really important component of all the work that we do because we want to know if what we're doing is working. Um, and so bee monitoring on site has been really important part of, of the, of this vineyard project. Um, but, um, and then this last year, James and I sat down with a map and literally just highlighted every single square inch of property that we possibly could um, plant flowers. And I wrote a grant for a large um, wildflower, Oregon wildflower donation. And we just covered the vineyard with as many flowers as we possibly could. However, in the drought, we did have a hard time getting many of those flowers to go. We did have like, it was really fascinating to be able to learn about the water dynamics in the vineyard because that really was what spelled success for the areas that did go really well and bloom and have a ton of bees. But the one trick that we've actually discovered is the, the most uh, beneficial thing that he could do for bees was to stop mowing. I started noticing that there's these little spots that the mowers would miss and they would have flowers and be covered in bees. And so I just requested like, hey, would you mind just not mowing? <laughs> and for as long as you humanly could, which is like to be fire safe and everything. And so uh, he transitioned his farm workers this spring away from mowing into watering the flowers that he planted. And um and yeah, it was amazing. It was it was absolutely spellbinding to see even these native flowers that have been dormant for probably 20 years that just get mowed every single year came back with wild abandon. And the super cool weird bees that were all over these flowers was just so awesome. Oh, that is so, so. fascinating. So really it was it, it, it wasn't so much a matter of maybe planting flowers as just not mowing the flowers that already wanted to, to live there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And a lot of it was on hillsides, which the taller your flowers are, the deeper the roots and the more like, cause we have to be thinking about climate change resilience and everything that we do. And so the deeper these roots are, the more stable the hillsides are going to be in case of some sort of um, flood event they're going to stay in place and your soil and your topsoil is going to stay in place. Whereas anything else with a destabilized, like anything on a slope, like they have in the Lama Valley is just going to go. So, um, so yeah, so that, uh, so James and I, uh, are working hard on trying to figure out exactly what we're doing and how to do it and how to do it well and how to make it replicable. And so we hope to kind of use this as our flagship vineyard and teach workshops and host other, um, winemakers and vineyard managers to um to come and see what we've done and to teach other people how to do it um, wow, so hopefully we'll be rolling that out in the next couple of years i just think that is so great again really thinking about okay we're utilizing this land you know to grow grapes or to graze cattle how can we do it more sustainably how can we do it to to build biodiversity and increase the health of our ecosystems and our bees. I just, I think that's terrific. And now I wanna talk about another project that's fascinating to me, your project with the Oregon Department of Transportation yeah. and their restoration um, project. So tell us about that. 
Yeah, so um, I just, uh, this project is purely a, a, a monitoring project. So they, uh, the Oregon Department of Transportation bought a 200 acre ranch quite a few years ago, um, gosh, probably maybe even 10 years ago at this point. Um, don't quote me on that. I'm thinking it was yeah, I, I'm for some reason 2006 is popping into my head, but um, or maybe 2006. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I not sure. Written that down. Yeah. <laughs> I started working with them in 2017, 2016, 2017, I believe. So maybe that's why that number is popping in my head. But they had already done quite a bit of restoration at the point that I had come in. So basically, it is Oregon law that anytime you take out a sensitive habitat or a wetland, you have to bank that, that I can't just disappear. You have to, you have to make it right <laughs> somehow. So it goes into what's called a conservation bank. And instead of just um, doing a, a square mile here, a square acre here or there, they bought this 200 acre ranch to use as a physical bank for any time they did a road project where they took out an acre or many acres of wetland or sensitive habitat, they would uh, restore, they would use those um, funds to restore uh, acres uh, in on this property and, and restore it back into its original vernal pool glory. And vernal pools are this really super cool, weird, unique system of perennial wetlands, whereas in the wet season, it's a bunch of very, you can see they're like small lakes or very, very large ponds. Um, and then in the dry season, those ponds dry up and uh, you just have a, um, a, uh, a very hilly, vast landscape. But if you look closely, they are full of flowers because of the nature of the pools and how slowly they dry up, they can water these perennial flowers that or or annual flowers that come back year after year after year so um the um and these are we have them right in central point yeah yeah that's where this project is is like the central point area it's at the foothill like really kind of like the the um it's whetstone savannah so the kind of like down below the table rocks but it's awesome because if you get this time of year if you hike up to the top of the table rocks and you look out you can see the vernal pool systems down below which is really really cool oh. so um anywho one of the there's a lot of monitoring going on at this project to again make sure that it's a successful project and everyone is doing everything right and um one of the um the uh, indicator species to let the biologists know if they're doing things right at the project is bees. So I have this really super awesome long-term monitoring project on this vernal pool site, and there's nothing like it in the country, um, which is really exciting. The amount of data that we've been able to pull from this site. Um, I just started working with a, uh, a graphic designer to start doing some infographs um, with our data to be able to make them a, a bit more um, uh, digestible for the public to be able to see what we're finding out there and how um, and the and the success the great success that this project is having because year after year after year there's more bees and more different species of bees which is so inspirational for me to see how incredibly resilient a system can be this was a highly degraded piece of land that had been plowed flat and being and then the um, the crew put back in these vernal pools and um, plant 
flower seeds. And so that's another part of it is I report back to ODOT every month what I'm seeing and the bees that I'm seeing and then the flowers that I'm seeing and the different relationship dynamics between the bees themselves and the bees and the flowers. And that helps them make decisions as to what they're going to be planting um, in the next year or replanting or um, not terminating. So one of the really interesting plants that we have out there is pennyroyal, which is the bane of most conservationists. But Paul and I love it. The biologist out there, wetland ecologist, we <laughs> we're, we're keeping it. Um, and then the teasel as well, which is another um, plant that a lot of um, <laughs> wetland ecologists don't tend to love because it can be really aggressive. Mm -hmm. But those two plants sustain our native bee populations out there for a lot of the year when other things aren't blooming. So we're not letting them get wild and take over um, uh, too much of the project. And so far they do, they're not supposed to play well with other plants, but they really do seem to like have been, they do seem to be striking a bit of a symbiotic relationship out there for now. Maybe it's just kind of the extreme weather that's keeping them in check, but um, it's just so interesting. And it was really cool to me to be able to just have this conversation with the, with the manager out there and say like, look, I know that these plants are super naughty <laughs> and we're all supposed to hate them, but they're really, really beneficial. The teasel is this extraordinarily beneficial for our bumblebees and the teasel or the, excuse me, the penny royal is feeding a lot of our um, andrina, which is a, another small native bee. And I, I have my skills for IDing bees only go to genus. So I'm going to start sending our bees away to key them down to species. And I, and I will find it very interesting if we have some extraordinarily rare Andrina species that are being supported and um, by this plant that we're all supposed to not like. So um, Paul and I- It really I makes you rethink get, you know, what, why we in, like plants and you know maybe yeah, why we, we should like plants. We get stuck in these philosophical discussions about um, uh, plants and climate change and managing the landscape and challenging norms and uh, and just doing things a little differently out there. Um, not the normal prescription, but kind of just like watching and waiting and learning. And um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a, and then this project for me has really become inspiration. I get to go out there once a week in the spring, summer, and a little bit into the fall and just watch nature do nature and see what's possible on our agricultural lands um, and be able to just kind of uh, watch and understand uh, natural dynamics and learn from the bees and learn from the flowers and then try and take that and apply that into, because there is a difference between wild landscapes and working agricultural lands. But I think that there are definitely lessons that can go from our natural wild spaces and be applied into our agricultural spaces as well. And since um, you're working in both of those types of settings, I mean, yeah. that's got to be very interesting how you can use that, you know, um, one setting to inform your research in another setting. Mm -hmm. I looked at some of the findings that you reported for 2019, and it looked like there was just this huge amount of uh, number of sweat bees 
yeah. um, at the vernal pools. Why, why so many sweat bees in particular, do you think? Yeah, lazy oglossum. Well, they're the most common type of bee in the U.S. Right. So that's, <laughs> so, I mean, people don't even notice them or know that they're a bee, but as far as like abundance wise, they are all over the place. So I bet you that wasn't surprising to you. No. Yeah. Yeah. At first, I just thought at first, I didn't know that at first I have learned so much from this project. I didn't really know much about uh, native bees at all. I was a beekeeper through and through when I, when we first started this project and I have learned so much thanks to, um, uh, mentorship from Sam Drogi, who runs the Bee Lab and uh, at the USGS, and then also the Oregon Bee Project has just been a fabulous um, resource for me for my own education for being able to help me expand my knowledge for all these projects. But um, but yeah, I at first I didn't, I had no idea that they were, and I, yeah, but the more I learned about sweat bees and lazy oglossum, they're just really, really common. There's just so many of them out there. They're, and the ones that we have at ODOT are actually um, so tiny. They're about the size of an ant, not at those little tiny stinky sugar ants, but the next size up. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, and not like a, not like a big carpenter ant. There's one ant that's like right in between those two that are a bit more common. And so they might even be a little bit smaller than that ant. And they're this beautiful sage green color. But unless you were looking for them or unless you knew about them, you'd never even know they existed. And there are trillions of them in the Rogue Valley. And they are gorgeous. When you look at them under the microscope, they have, they don't have a lot of hairs, but they're, they have like kind of these light beige fuzz but their exoskeleton is a gorgeous iridescent sage green and their ocelii which are three eyes on the top of their head that they use for navigation are rose pink oh pretty wow they sound like they are very pretty yeah and they're everywhere and you just wouldn't know unless you knew i have a methodology question and and this is kind of an important question to me because I, I want to, and I think a lot of gardeners would love to be able to um, monitor better the number of native, um, not only bees, but, you know, just native wildlife um, in their, uh, or wildlife in general, in their gardens. Mm -hmm. And I'm just fascinated with how in the heck do you go into a pasture or a setting and 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 count bees? It just seems like it, it's an overwhelming thing. Can can you shed a little light on that for me? <laughs> yeah, for my live monitoring. So there's two different ways that we monitor. One is a um, uh, unfortunately it is a, a mortal <laughs> or a, a yeah it's a um, we do. Uh, um, terminate the lives of the poor bees, but um, in order to be able to see what's going on and I'm not there because I'm only there for <laughs> a day a week at most, uh, or sometimes even in other projects for, you know, four different times during the year or something. So I can't be there all the time. So we'll set traps um, that trap the bees and then we bring them back to the office and we wash them and blow dry them to puff up their fuzz so I can identify them. And then um, I sit down with my microscope for hours and hours and hours and sort through and catalog and pin and save um, all of these bees. And we have massive collections to use for um, 
interpretive art projects that I'm currently working on as um, that will be, uh, um, yeah, well, that's coming. Wow. <laughs> but keep your eye, keep your eye on our social media. I have some, I have a really cool um, art project that I've been working on for the last year that um, we're going to be releasing uh, soon. Um, and then also just for our educational collection for showing people um, and kids when we do our programs. Um, just to get people excited about the, the variety and the diversity of bees that are right here in our own backyards. So, um, so that's how, uh, that's where most of the data comes from is trapping um, from when I'm not there. And then, uh, then I also do live watching and that's how I evaluate the dynamics and the relationship between the flowers and the bees. And so that's how I can say like, definitively Facelia is a bee-friendly flower, Sandpoint is a bee-friendly flower because I literally sit there with this. So I have a meter square, which is just a PVC <laughs> square that I throw onto the ground where I find bees and flowers. And then I set a timer for five minutes. And then I have my, I have an app that I was using, but it's um, <laughs> uh, a bit finicky. So I went back to good old um, pen and paper. <laughs> and then I will sit there for a while first. And I have these binoculars that are actually for um, observing and monitoring butterflies, but they work great for bees as well. So it's like having a microscope in the field with you. So I have my, my butterfly binoculars and I will um, watch the bees inside my square and just get, and then identify as best as I can down to genus who is flying around on these flowers. And then I just count with tick marks. Um, I watch the flowers and there's really not as many bees within five minutes as you would think, like oftentimes less than 10 even, um, depending upon the flower. Sometimes it's just like a mass um, for sure. So yeah, so I, I just sit there and I watch bees and I record the flowers that they're attracted to and how many um, flowers get, which visits from which bees and then that informs our data going forward. Oh, I just, I think that's, it's simple. It seems like it, you know, you have to sit there and, and be very observant and, and be willing to write down. But I mean, I, it, to me, that sounds like something an ecologically minded gardener might be able to do in their garden, because you're only taking that one rectangular uh, or the the space, what, what did you say it was? Um, it's not a square, yeah. yeah. Okay, so not rectangle, a square, Rhonda. Um, but, and then you're just focusing on that and then you just move it to a different location, right? And yeah, then, or if, oh. there's, if there's folks that are listening that are interested in getting into bees and understanding the bees that they have in their backyard and actually participating in citizen science or community science research, the Oregon Bee Project is a great, organization to get involved with and they'll actually give you protocol for monitoring your own backyards or if there's even um, volunteers now that'll head off into the steams and go monitor bees out there and so they will train you and equip you for the um, with the skills and the tools that you need to monitor native bees anywhere from your own backyard to mountaintop that you want to hike to or a camping trip or a day at the lake or or whatever yeah there's so many volunteers that have become so passionate about it and they um just well can't help but look at bees everywhere they go i am definitely guilty of that as well so um but yeah the, uh, the oregon bee project is awesome and then if you just 
If you simply just want to know what's in your backyard, there's a book called Bees in Your Backyard that is gorgeous and fabulous. And um, I would highly recommend just for anyone to get that book if you're interested in what's and the, yeah, our native bees really are basically wildlife. And so if you're interested in wildlife already, bees can add, native bees can add just a whole new level <laughs> to your wildlife viewing. If you're, uh, yeah, into birding, you probably would easily get really into um, identifying and watching native bees in your backyard. So yeah, kind of beginner level would be just get, getting the book, uh, the Bees in Your Backyard. Um, and then uh, if you really want to step it up a notch and participate in citizen science, um, Bum uh, Bumblebee Watch through the Xerces Society is not as quite involved as the Oregon Bee Project. You basically just go out in your backyard and take a picture of a bumblebee and try and identify her and the flower that she's on. Um, and that's pretty simple and fun and easy to do with kids. Um, I have found iNaturalist to be very helpful yeah, for identifying yeah, all kinds of well. Yeah, yeah. So the Oregon Bee Project actually um, uses iNaturalist um, in their citizen science. So now yeah, I became familiar with the Oregon Bee Project and the um, the Bee Atlas survey. Yep. Yeah. And because I not too long ago I did a column on squash bees. Oh, and yeah. yeah, and I became and I <laughs> I realized that I became aware that it was one of your students from the biology camp in Ashland in 2016 who cited the first squash bee recorded in Oregon, right? Yeah. It's so funny because I was actually at an Oregon Bee Project training and they were like, yeah, there's this is the, there's this one bee called Pepinapis pruniosa, the squash bee, and it's been, it comes from yeah, uh, like Central uh, America, Central um, uh, America-ish, Mexico, and it's been making its way um, north and east and taking advantage of squash farms and cucurbits. And so it's actually the only bee that's really, truly benefited from agriculture. And, and it's really fascinating to watch how it's spread across the U.S. And I was like, oh yeah, we have those. And they were like, no, they don't. The USD has been looking for them for 10 years. We don't have them in Oregon. I was like, yeah, we do. <laughs> I was like, I, like a couple of years ago, I was like my, um, one of my students, uh, it was in a, um, yeah, science camp, a week-long science camp for kids for bee science. And we were doing a tour of this farm and this little kid was bent down by a squash flower and she was like, there's a flat honeybee in here. And I was like, oh, let me see. And I looked down and I was like, you're right. It's a flat honeybee. That's not a honeybee. That's like a flat bee <laughs> that looks like a honeybee, but that's, and so I looked it up and it was a squash bee. And um, I didn't know that they weren't common around here. And then, so the, the professors, the teachers at the Oregon Bee Project training were like, we don't believe you. <laughs> They're like, catch one and we'll see. And I was like, okay. So I just went back to the farm that the kid had like seen a couple of years ago where the bee was. And I just caught one and shipped it up to the lab. And lo and behold, first, I mean, they've obviously been here for a while now and a lot of people have seen them, but um, I was able to capture the first one and it was officially ID'd and um, officially published. So I think that's um, a great story. Yeah. You, know, you spend a lot of your time 
it seems like educating children and, and youth about bees. Tell us a little bit about that work. That's got to be really fun and gratifying. After all, it's the kids who are going to, you know, uh, take us even more forward with our yeah, thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to do it. And um, it's, I've always gotten pushback on doing uh, my kids program. And it's funny, I felt so validated because I took a, a conservation course, um, an online conservation course from Jane Goodall last year. And she started a program called Roots and Shoots, which is educating kids about becoming conservationists. And a lot of people pushed back on her and said, you're a researcher, you're an educator of adults. Like, what is the point of reaching out to kids? And she said, they're like, you don't have time. You're too busy. You have too many other important things to do besides teach kids. And she was like, what are you talking about? Kids are the future. Kids are like the, the most important people that we should be paying attention to. And I've always felt the same way. And I just really love working with kids. Before I was a beekeeper, I had a um, 10 year career as a substitute teacher and a paraprofessional for kids with autism. And I volunteered for kids stuff and I ran a kids camp at a rec club. And so, yeah, I've always, um, my mom was a teacher. My grandpa was the elementary school principal. I just come from a, a line of educators. And I've always thought that I just, I mean, it's not even that I just think that <laughs> educating kids is important, which I do. I just really, really love it. I just really love working with kids. And I think that they're so funny and so wonderful <laughs> and so fun to be around and have such a, their brains just work so different than adults' brains that it helps me really rethink a lot of the things that I think about conservation and bees and the way that the world works. And so, um, yeah. And so, um, uh, because unfortunately, I mean, uh, not unfortunately, but because we've gotten so involved in the research aspect of, on the conservation aspect of the bee world, I don't have as much time as I once did to do my kids' programs. I used to spend, um, about a third of the year on the road doing huge, like, bee camps and big collaborations with other beekeeping um uh association you, you, you have a workshop coming up and yeah yeah yeah. yeah so yeah so that's kind of um we whittled it down to the one big thing that I still do with kids is the American Beekeeping Federation we partner with them to do a big kids event every year wherever their conference is so this year it's in Las Vegas and um it's coming up in the beginning of January um, and, and that'll be a blast. And, um, so yeah, so, uh, so that's, we throw this big, um, event. It's like a pop-up bee themed hands-on science museum. (laughs) And, um, that's powered by a whole lot of volunteers and we bring through hundreds of kids and teach them all about why bees are really cool. But then I've been able to really take all of the things that I've learned about teaching kids about bees. And now that's more my role is I do a lot of train the trainer sessions and and I've written a a handbook on how to teach kids about bees. And I'm currently finishing version two of the handbook and we'll have actually two separate handbooks, one for teachers and one for beekeepers that wanna teach kids about bees. So um, just because I can't be out in the world every day, um, teaching kids directly about bees anymore doesn't mean that 
everyone else can't be. <laughs> so well, I just I try and look at as that many handbook. tools as I possibly can. Yeah. Sarah, I, I saw that handbook and I am very impressed by, oh, I mean, it's filled with not only great illustrations, but some real life photographs, close-ups of bees. I mean, it's just, it, you've got the curriculum, there's the standards in there, there are instructional activities, um, how to convince the, your administration to allow you to set up a, a, a beekeeping um, program at the school. Yeah. I mean, it really does have everything. So what what is it about the second edition that's going to be different? Or is it it's um it's the the main thing about the second edition is just breaking the the handbook into two separate books um so one will be specifically like really geared towards beekeepers um beekeepers who are educators or in leadership positions or just really again like to work with kids so it'll be um this is more for beekeepers someone who knows more about bees um and uh, and also how to bring your uh, how to develop a program and how to bring the program into the school, whereas the then we'll have another one that is specifically for teachers, and then that one is more like this is how you reach out and work with a beekeeper <laughs> if you want to have bees on campus, or this is how you reach out to a beekeeper to find to bring in, and then there also is we've rewritten all of our curriculum. I hired a um, a consultant to go through every square inch, every I, every dot and line of our of our curriculum to rewrite our whole curriculum and then also rematch them to state and national 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 standards, science standards. And so um, it'll be more curriculum focused. And then we've also tried to make it um, for teachers as equitable as possible. So it'll be a handbook if you want to teach your kids about bees and you live in the middle of a city and only have a cement <laughs> basketball court, you'll still be able to do that. We've come up with curriculum to be able to do that. Or if you live in a rural area or a small town and you have a community garden or a school garden nearby and you want to plant for bees and do monitoring, teach kids about bees, that way you can do that too. So we've tried to kind of include something for everybody if you have a desire to teach your kids about bees. Wow, what, what a wonderful thing um, to have available for folks. So now I, I, I keep asking you about, but you're just into so many different things. I did want to touch on um, your travels to Tanzania recently. Yeah. And because that's a really cool project. I had never heard of Wild Survivor until mm -hmm. I looked it up. And I just think that, I mean, who would have thought that bees and elephants <laughs> would be an important relationship? I just love that. So talk a little bit about that project as well. Yeah, yeah. Elephants are, are terrified of honeybees because um, they honeybees are very smart. They can see heat. And so they know exactly where to sting to get an elephant to leave them alone. Um, and there sadly is, um, historically has been quite a bit of farmer elephant conflict. Elephants need to eat a lot of food and they need to drink a lot of water and they will come into a farm and completely decimate that farm and eat everything. And they also are huge. And if you have a bull elephant, he can be extraordinarily aggressive to people. They really aren't afraid of much. And if you have a mom with a baby, she also can be aggressive. And there has been deaths at the um, 
the feet of elephants, unfortunately. So it's not uh, a super positive relationship um, ever since uh, crop farming um, came to Tanzania. Mm. So there is an initiative that was started by Lucy King, who runs Save the Elephants to try and get build these fences of beehives. So they're these large posts that have hives strung on durable wires. And then there are beehives um, strung from these wires. And so, and then they are in between identified elephant migration corridors and farms. And so the, um, when an elephant tries to bust through the fence to go into the farm for a snack, it makes the bees mad because they don't like it when people bump their homes and they come out and even the sound of a buzz will scare the bejesus out of an elephant and they'll take off running. So um, yeah, and so it's this really cool transition of like the farm guards who used to um, stay up all night in shacks and try and scare away the elephants are now learning how to become beekeepers. Oh and um, Sarah, I just love that. I think that is so cool. Yeah, yeah, which is really neat. And so this NGO and many, there's many, many other projects just like this project and especially in Kenya and Tanzania is an NGO will pay for the beekeeping equipment and the beehives and then um, set them out and the bees will fly in and make a ton of honey. And then the um, farmers will uh, process the honey and sell the honey. And then it is hands down the highest price point of any other commodity that they would be growing in their farm. So it can be like extraordinarily financially beneficial for the, for the farms as well. So yeah, I just kind of went because I had um, uh, met through a common friend, the executive director of Wild Survivors. And I just felt like I had a lot of um, skills that I could offer the project with my knowledge of farming and beekeeping. And they had also just started an education um, uh, an educational um, program to start talking to the kids about wildlife and conflict and the importance of wildlife and the importance of timbo uh, elephants. And so they uh, requested my help and kind of helping to mentor their educator and get the program lifted off the ground. So yeah, it was really cool. I was able to use like my whole skill set while I was there. Um, I went and spent a few weeks and got to meet with the farmers and talk to them about soil health and planting for bees because they want more hives, but they don't currently have the habitat to support the amount of hives that they want mm. to complete the fence. And so they really need to start working on bee habitat and soil health <laughs> um, on the farms. And so we had a long talk about that. And I wrote um, a big prescription for the farm for suggestions for, um, uh, improving soil health and working with the Maasai people to bring in grazers <laughs> onto the farm. Because right now, um, oftentimes the, the Maasai people who are the livestock herders and then the farmers who are growing the crops don't really interact. Um, they don't oftentimes graze their, their farmlands post-harvest. Um, but there's such an opportunity there for um, bringing those two groups together and increasing soil health. So I talked to a few farmers about that. Um, I um, observed and gave feedback to the educator on one of the um, kids programs that he did. And then he and I co-led a kids program, which was 
really, really fun and awesome and challenging because I don't speak much Swahili. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and then I also, um, uh, we were supposed to have a beekeeping day as well. I was able to connect them with a beekeeper that I um, know just through social media in Tanzania, um, who is going to many of the farmers don't know how to keep bees or how to harvest the honey. So he was supposed to come and do some mentoring and do some honey harvest. But unfortunately um, we had some uh, um, uh, family sickness issues and he wasn't able to join the join join us. So that kind of fell apart while I was there, which was a bummer, but um, yeah. And then I even like went and helped um, one of the lodges that we stayed at. I helped um, negotiate a deal for selling their honey through the lodge and the gift shop. So I was, <laughs> these are all things that I've just done in my own career. And it was just really cool to be able to see how, you know, the skill set that I have gained over the last 10 years of running Bee Girl has just so easily transferable to any agricultural system with bees, <laughs> even in the wilds of Tan Tanzania at the literal ends of the earth. Um, but it was so fun to be able to go and to just offer up some help and, um, and uh, do anything that I could there. So yeah, I, I do look forward to going back one day and, and helping out more if I can. So wow, that's just, and I fun. learned a ton too, just, you know, I, it was a lot of opportunity for me to reflect back on um, all of the privileges that we do have here in the U.S. and um, and and made it obvious to me. Um, yeah, I just I was so thankful for the level of education that I've been able to get. They just when I just talking to the farmers about soil health and planting for bees and different um, agricultural methods, and they were like, "How do you know all of this?" And I was like, "Man, like I am just so lucky and so privileged and to be able to have the." opportunity for education that I do through the Soil Health Academy and um, Nicole Masters. And there's just so many brilliant people doing such good work here in the US. And I'm able to kind of sit at the feet of those people and learn and um, feel very lucky to be able to do what I do and travel and speak and talk with other farmers and beekeepers and just try and keep, um, yeah, spreading the spreading the good word of conservation and, and diversity. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Now, um, you, uh, you had mentioned that one of your inspirations um, was a, a Kenyan woman named Wanjari Matai. Am I saying that correctly? Wanjari Matai, yeah. Yes. <laughs> first woman in East and Central Africa to earn a doctorate degree. The first African woman to earn a Nobel Peace Prize. That was in 2004. She was the founder of the Green Belt Movement. I think that was very interesting where the whole idea is to combat deforestation by planting trees. Yes. I just love that. I got a quote from her. She said, when she was accepting the Nobel Peace Prize, she said, I am especially mindful of women and girls. I hope it will encourage getting the Nobel Peace Prize. I hope it will encourage them to raise their voices and take more space for leadership. I just thought that that was really an, um, uh, a very powerful quote. She says, she talked about herself and she said, finally, I was able to see 
that if I had a contribution I wanted to make, I must do it despite what others said, that I was okay the way I was, that it was all right to be strong. Yeah. And because there was such a cultural, um, a cultural tradition against women leaders and, and um, you know, women speaking out. Do you, you, you've talked about how, you know, you feel fortunate to be in, in the United States and having uh, the opportunities, opportunities that you have had, but have you ever felt a little bit like that, that you were just supposed to be quiet and not speak out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Wayne Gary Mathai is such a badass and I encourage anyone to um, do what you did and look her up and her work and her, what she said, unfortunately, we lost her to cancer a few years ago, but her daughter has taken up her work and she continues on and her daughter actually sounds exactly like her. And I heard her in a podcast the other day and was just crying like giant alligator tears. I was just so sad. Um, or not elegant, huge tears. Like I just, yeah, it, she's, uh, yeah, such, such a force. Um, uh, but yeah, absolutely. I, um, when I first started coming into the world of bee research and also I really kind of, um, I entered, into the bee world through commercial beekeeping and through research. And there was not a lot of women (laughs) and there was not a lot of women at the breakfast tables. There was not a lot of women in the meetings, the association meetings. There was not a lot of women at the conferences and there was no young people either. Um, There was one American beekeeping conference, American beekeeping federation conference I went to probably eight or nine years ago. And one of the keynote speakers kind of made this point where she had um, everybody stand up and then sat down at like different ages and this, this, and this, and different questions. And then at the end of it, it was like the final thing was stay standing. If you are under 30 or under and work in bees full-time and me and one other person were standing in a room of a thousand people. Wow. (laughs) Things have very much changed since then. Now there's a, um, one of the first things I did was start something I called the Next Generation Beekeepers Initiative, where I would create a physical, an, like a um, emotional and physical space at beekeeping conferences for young beekeepers, because most young beekeepers and most women, which they're out there, but they didn't feel invited or wanted or needed or welcome at beekeeping conferences. So I would just rent out an art studio or a bar or like some kind of cool space that was adjacent to the conference center and have live music and do like networking, like young beekeeper networking. And um, I'd always get beer donated. (laughs) So it'd be free beer. Yay. Yeah. Like one year I got like uh, a local um, creamery to make a honey lavender ice cream for us. And so I'd like always, you know, tempt young beekeepers to conferences to just come hang out with me. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, it, um, it was, um, uh, it was a lonely road at first being a young female in the world of um, research and commercial beekeeping. And um, yeah, it, there was adversity. And sadly, the adversity came from the other women in beekeeping, because there wasn't a lot of us. And it was that whole miss uh, kind of, um, uh, um, wrongly guided view 
that there is only one spot for women in a boardroom. If there's 10 chairs in a boardroom, there's one spot for a woman. And that, um, and that, and that is, you, that really goes through all boardrooms and all meeting rooms and even into agriculture. And they're very much felt like, um, unfortunately, in the beginning there was, um, yeah, a lot that I came up against. And unfortunately it was from the other like one, two or three women that were currently in the industry. And I was actually just thinking about that this morning because I'm speaking at a um, an online conference later this week about, um, it, it's a conference specifically for women leaders in regenerative agriculture. And my whole talk will be about being a woman in beekeeping. And I was thinking back this morning to a comment that a woman made that um, to a, a, a group um, of leaders in the beekeeping industry and someone there was Mole, they were my friends, so they told me what she said. And she literally said that I was not to be collaborated with because I wore dresses and that was unprofessional. <laughs> and I just was, I, yeah. And, um, Luckily, I did have a woman fighting for me in the inside, Dr. Marla Spivak. Um, we met early, early on and got on right away. And she has massive power and influence in the beekeeping industry. And she really stood up for me and advocated for me from within, um, as long as my, uh, as well as my other um, uh, beekeeping mentors that are, um, have powerful positions in the beekeeping industry, they would be my advocates and my cheerleaders as well. And that's because of them that I'm still in the game, but I'm forever. I mean, I, I have a picture. I don't know if you can see it it's behind me. I have a picture of Marla and I, um, on my bulletin board behind me. And, uh, yeah, I'm forever thankful for her being the one woman at the time, um, in a position of power and leadership that really, um, uh, yeah, didn't buy it. She didn't buy that just because my group was called B-Girl and because I wore dresses and because I was feminine that I wasn't worthy of being listened to or collaborated with, so. Well, I think we can all be thankful that she advocated for you. And, and now you work with some lovely women within the B-Girl organization, correct? Yeah, I just, for I kind of have the opposite theories. I'm like, let's bum rush the stage. <laughs> like, let's get as many of us together as possible and then charge. <laughs> I love Got it. my back, I have your back. Look behind you, make sure she's still there. Go get her, bring her with. Like, I just, um, yeah, it's, a, it's important to me that we all, um, are each other's mentors and advocates. And I, um, it's funny because it's not purposeful, but I have always had female interns. I think we've had 14 interns now and um, 13 of them have been female and our staff members have always been female and we've often had a majority female on the board. And I don't do this really purposefully. I think it's just the energy that I put out that I want, I bring in other women, they feel, comfortable and safe and attracted to what we have going on here. And so, um, yeah, I've just been really, really lucky over the years to be able to work with some pretty stellar ladies. And, um, and I also, at this point in time, have now a really close um, uh, community of, of, of my own community of friends in the research and commercial beekeeping industry as well. Like other young women that were my age that were coming up in our late 20s and early 30s together, and we're all still in it. Um, and, uh, and we, uh, support each other and, 
and just uh, it's always a lovely reunion at a, 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 a beekeeping meeting or a conference that we're able to get together and share war stories. Well, again, Sarah, the work that you're doing in increasing awareness of just how important bees are and how we can all protect bees, attract bees, feed bees, shelter bees. Um, it's just so important. And, and thank you so much for all of the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate being able to talk to you. And um, I just kind of, my hope is that I can just continually fill myself up with knowledge and love about bees that it spills over onto other people. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to do that. Well, you, you have done that for years and I know you'll continue to do that for many years to come. <laughs> thank you. All right.